Welcome to episode 837 of I Am Talk, your weekly fix in all things Iron Man. Radio team, welcome along to episode 837 of I Am Talk with Coach John Newsome and Bevan James Oz. How you going, mate? I am very good, Bevan. It's our third show in a row. It was. It was an awesome Collins Cup at the weekend. But we can't talk about it. We can't talk about it. There's an embargo. No, we're away. So, Bugger. unfortunate. We'll talk about it next week, though. Yeah, we'll so tune back in then. Hopefully you enjoyed it. I Am Talk is proudly brought to you by... Form Goggles. Uh, you get the most accurate, real-time metrics Hundreds of guided workouts and lap by lap motivation. Check out check out form at form. Oh sorry, www.formswim.com. We also say thank you to our patrons, Jeff the Jackhammer Roberts. We've got Murray uh, the Holy Hammer Lap. We've got a couple of hammers there. I don't know how they came, they sort of came together on the show. Yeah. both from Christchurch, both hammers. Okay. Uh, and then also from Christchurch, Phil the Philinator Patterson. Okay, we've also got in this week's show. We've got no news because we're doing three weeks in a row. Uh, we've got an interview, John. We have. We are talking to David Robson. Uh, it's going to be an interesting, interesting interview around expectation and the power of your mind uh, and how it can influence... What's the book the, called? The expectation effect uh, and how the power of your mind can influence your body in more ways than perhaps you thought were possible. Okay, so it's, it might be a little bit short so we show this week, guys, because obviously we're just trying to as much as we can but let's get into that anyway in a second uh, so first of all let's go on, before it. we do this Collins Cup any, any wild predictions here Bevan do you think the Europeans were beatable no no, no. do you think the international, who came second internationals come second do you think Hayden Wild won his match Ooh. depends who gets put like if it's if it's Eden mm. I'm going to say no okay I'm going to say if it's Blumenfeld and Eden mm-hmm I think he beats Boomfelt. Okay. Oh, but I don't know about Eden. What do you reckon? Uh, I'm going to say he beats anybody. Really? Yep. I'm saying hey, whoever they put him up against, he's beating them. It's it a big just call. comes down to the bike. He's just got to hang in there for 80k on the bike. So I'm putting. I'm, I'm picking. What is this? I reckon he's got more chance against. This is going to sound really weird. Uh, he's got more chance against someone like a Eden. Gustav Eden and a Bloomfield because he's probably going to be in the game with them out of the swim as opposed to somebody that might potentially get away from him on the bike. Um, I, I don't know. Like maybe if a dit, dit leaves a pretty crappy swimmer though, but there's a potential for somebody to get away in the swim in the bike. And so when they were... Oh, different knows. Anyway, <laughs> Duffy, Duffy's also won her race and sadly the Americans finished third place. Okay, that's, that's good. Okay, so the, this week's quiz question, that's the news. Yeah, that's the news. <laughs> that's the news. This week's quiz question, in what year did John Collins... And his cohort, cohort do the first Ironman triathlon. Mm. It's one or two. I've got one of two. I'm pretty sure I know this. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, that was when they, they did the equivalent of doing the uh, Waikiki Rough Water Swim, I think this is what it was called. Yep. And they sort of did a bike around Oahu, which is the main island in Honolulu. And, and then did the, yeah, the Honolulu well, Marathon yeah, course. Yeah. And the bike course was a race as well. They're all three races. Yeah. Because that, that was the concept. It was like, if you can do these three races in one day, I'll call you an Ironman. 
And why are we doing that this week? Because Collins Cup was on last weekend. It's named after John Collins, so I thought we'd, we'd have a little walk down memory lane. Okay, uh, let's get into Coocher on a website of the week. Okay, so this week we're going to be looking at a new indoor trainer platform called mywish.com. Now, have you tried it? I have tried this uh, and, and three so times. And so we're thinking it's like a Zwift? It is basically like Zwift. So I've got the pros and the cons here. Okay. So it's an online platform. And the reason I'm bringing this up is the pro number one is it's free. Oh, that's a big And pro. it's free all access. So some other platforms... So, are are they going with the... Um, that, what's that big game that Fortnite that all kids play? Um, so, yeah. for, so Fortnite, a lot of people know this, John, you won't. Yeah. Um, but Fortnite basically kind of changed the business model of games. Mm. So what Fortnite's totally free and mm-hmm. anyone can play it and you get no advantage by spending money. Mm-hmm. But they make shitloads of money on things like buying your outfit. Mm-hmm. And you know, so they've got this kind of free model. Now, you, I'm not quite sure if you can buy quality. Mm-hmm. You might. I've never played it, so you might be able to buy better weapons. But I don't think you can. I think it's kind of like the game is actually just about skill. But they make so much money on selling things like you can be Captain America and you yeah. pay five bucks to be Captain America. So the business model is more selling expression than selling the game. Uh, I don't think that'll be the case here, but okay. uh, I think it'll be Zwift when they first came out. They were free for quite a while. It'll be a case of getting an audience, it's free to get an audience and then you start charging okay. later, I imagine. But for the time being, if you're a cheap ass and you don't want to pay for any platform or if you're new to this or if, if you're someone that only very rarely gets on the trainer and you don't want to pay that much why, for fee. Why, why, why would you not use this over Swift? Uh, well, I'll get into that because that's, 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 that's why we're going to do pros and cons. So pro is number one is it's free access. Um, pro number two, it's new routes. The graphics are, are really good. Um, where it's o- based... Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. I don't get that excited about the graphics and stuff, but they're perfectly, perfectly adequate. It's based all around sort of um, Abu Dhabi, so they, they sponsor like the Abu Dhabi cycling team. So okay. all the routes are around there, sort of in deserts and things like that, um, and around sort of downtown um, Abu Dhabi and so on. How many routes are there on Zwift? Uh, there's more routes on Zwift. So Zwift has maybe six or seven worlds, and within that there's lots of different um Roots, so there's definitely. And are they adding all the time to Swift? Uh, not all the time, but they are adding to okay, it. Yep. Yeah, but this is new roots, new graphics. So yeah, but that doesn't do a lot for me. It's just a case of perfectly adequate. Um, one thing that is quite different to Zwift um, is really nicely laid out workouts and plans in Zwift. And I, I, we're only comparing against Zwift. There's, there's lots of other platforms as well. Um, but their sort of workouts and plans are a bit higgledy-piggledy all over the place. You can can tell they don't put a huge amount of time and effort into that um, compared to other aspects of their business. But on this, really easy. So you go, I want to do an Olympic distance plan, boom, away you go. And, and it's got a structured workouts for you there. And it's just laid out nice and easily. So that in Zwift, there is stuff there but I just don't find it super easy to sort of work your way and through. And that's where really like a, a Sufferfest network would be better, wouldn't they? Yeah, but yeah, I just, this is just simple, easy, boom, it's there, job done. Um, it has, uh, similar to other platforms, it syncs with things like Training Peaks, so if you've got your structured workouts there, you can um, do them in um, MyWish as well, uh, and you can do them on the whole, they have a whole week's sort of workouts there rather than with the Zwift and Training Peaks only works on one the particular day you're supposed to be doing the workout. Um, one area where it's sort of a pro and a con is is events. You know, there's so many people on Zwift. When you go to an event, you're going to have some other people to ride with. And I thought, oh, this is a new platform. There'll be bugger all people on here. Um, and you just end up being riding by yourself. So I thought, I'll have a look into this. And when I looked at it, 
a couple of events and spectated. There was like 55 people in there. I thought, oh, sweet. Um, it's actually it's a reasonable number for a race. And I thought, oh, well, I'll get on there and I'll, I'll do one of these races and get amongst it. And Thomas said to me before I got on, uh, so lots of those would probably be bots. Yeah, okay. Um, and so then I got on there and did this group ride and I wasn't racing it. I was like, oh, these guys are bloody bots. Uh, and it didn't bother me at the time. But was, how do you notice? Because uh, their power doesn't really change or anything. Oh, and, okay. Um, and for, for, for just a general ride, it actually was quite useful. It didn't bother me at all, and I'm just sort of riding with them. However, if I was in a race and I was trying to drop these people, I would get a bit bothered about it. So I don't really know how many people they have in their events at the moment. Um, where I got... Uh, sort of the idea to look into this website was DC Rainmaker did a post on them because they were at Eurobike which is a massive bike expo uh, over in Europe and they had this amazing looking 3D sort of stand okay. where you, it was just looked awesome um, and so I thought I'd check it out and according to his post uh, they've got racing that's actually got prize money attached to it oh, wow. so it's worth doing a lot of racing I don't know if there was any money involved during lockdown and stuff but I'd be surprised sorry or cheats yeah, yeah, you get cheats and stuff like that. Um, so one thing that they're looking at doing with my wish is they've got two, they measure power on two different devices, which is, sounds like it's coming. So you'll get power off your smart trainer and you've got to have power off your power meter as well. And so that helps to alleviate that cheating. There's always, I'm sure, going to be a way around. I don't really follow that stuff because I don't really care. Um, but they've got that in the winds to try to make their racing fairer, um, whereas Zwift doesn't necessarily take that quite as seriously as some people want them to um they don't have uh, little power up things like they do in zwift you know um so it's slightly less gamified um so all in all it's basically like zwift and those other similar platforms big thing is it's free um it syncs with all your stuff syncs with training peaks if you're on there um the downsides of it, as I said, I don't think you'll have the same numbers doing rides. And if you do just go for a random ride there, you're not going to have the same number of people that are riding around that you can sort of hook up with. Um, obviously, it won't be free forever. Uh, so, but yeah, if you're, if you're a cheap ass or if you just want something different or you're just a random rider who just wants to get on there occasionally um, on a crappy weather day, then go check it out. It's mywoosh.com. They're not sponsoring us or anything like that. I just um, thought I'd check it out and... Uh, yeah, it all looks pretty good. Well, what's really interesting is what is their business model? Because like, I know you're saying it's going to be freemium, free to build their audience, and then they'll go. They established in 2018. Hmm. So they've been around for a few years. Hmm. And that was the first you've heard of it? Yes. Yep. But it seems like a no-brainer. Yeah, so just got to build up the audience. But change is always but, hard for some people. Like for most people, if money's not that big a problem, it's like, uh, I quite like Zwift. It's easy. I'll just stick with that. So what will you do? Uh... I'll mix it up a little bit for the time being, but I, I, in winter it might be slightly different because I like to do races, um, and if I'm in a bike focus, I want to go to races where there's more people. Um, but it's a bit like with our TV channels, I sort of switch and chop and change a little bit. But I'm not the typical sort of typical audience. So for me, I don't do any indoor cycling. I don't have the setup. But if I was going to invest in something like, you know, having an indoor setup, I probably wouldn't use it a lot. Mm. You know, because most of my training is running, gym, you know, but I'd like the ability. Mm -hmm. So for me, it'd be like, hey, jump on this. Mm. You know, like, you know, for, you know, because how often we use with a month? Um, it varies a bit at the moment, but a lot of people will be using it two or three times a week. Yep. Um, me personally, might be once. Once a month? A week. Okay. And what do you yeah. pay for Zwift? Uh, off the top of my head, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think it's 29 bucks a month, US or something like that. Okay. Mm. 
Yeah, so you like if I was if I always want to do like one two sessions a month, hmm. mate, this would be a great answer. Exactly. Yeah. So there you go. Okay. Check out mywish.com. Okay. Well, Nothing against any of the other platforms. Just another one to check out. Yeah. It's, well, it's becoming a very competitive market, isn't it? Mm. You know, but Zwift seems to be the market leader by by a lot. A massive amount, I'd say. Yeah. At least in my world, in the triathlon world, it might be different. Different countries and different, you know, cycling might be slightly different to, to a lot of people are on Ruvi, um, full gas. You know, Ironman are, are now on full gas, and I've had some really positive feedback on that. And is it similar to the Avatar kind of thing? No, the full gas is you ride in courses, so that's the differentiator. Okay. So the, this is very basically like Zwift. Ruby and full gas are sort of riding on actual roads, and so you've had somebody film them, yep. um, and then you've got the other platforms that are. Do you like that? Um, I haven't just haven't done that much of it. Okay. Mm. And when you're riding on full roads and you're riding for other cyclists, what happens? What do they have there? Uh, like you know, can you do I, this with thing where you ride with your mates? Uh, yes, you can. Yeah. And they have like avatars or Different something. Avatars. Oh, yeah. Okay. 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 Oh yeah. Well, that's a review of as my wish. Wish? My wish. 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 Dot com. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Anyway, Tim, we've got an interview coming up. We've got David Robson from the author of The Expectation Effect. Here he comes. Here he is right now. Okay, guys, um, today's guest is called David Robson. He's the author of The Expectation Effect, How Your Mindset Can Transform Your Life. Uh, If you want to get hold of the book, we'll have links in the show notes. Um, And in the book, David takes us on a tour of the cutting-edge research that reveals for the many profound ways that our expectations shape our experience. Uh, He brings together loads of case studies and evidence-based science uh, and uncovers new techniques that we can all use to improve our fitness, productivity, intelligence, health, and happiness so the book's not necessarily targeted at uh at athletes but there's certainly a lot in there for athletes and there's one chapter in particular we'll, we'll focus on so i heard this um interview with david on radio new zealand down here a while ago and uh was fascinated by it and started reading the book and my progress has been stalled a little bit from too much watching of the commonwealth games um but it's <laughs> awesome so uh welcome along to the show david thanks so much for having me yeah can't wait to chat um, right before we start on the book, um, just tell us a little bit about yourself uh, and your, your sort of background, because I know in the book you said you're not necessarily uh, an athlete. I, I think your comments were you were formerly a reluctant exerciser. So tell us a bit about yourself and, and your background. Yeah, that's totally it. So I mean, my kind of academic background is that, you know, I studied maths at university, uh, specializing in kind of medical statistics. And then I became a science journalist for New Scientist magazine and then the BBC Um, and then I've written a couple of books and The Expectation Effect is my last book but in terms of um, you know my kind of athletics career which you know I haven't had at all um, and actually I found um, you know PE lessons at school uh, just really demoralizing (laughs) I kind of brought those attitudes into later life Um, so yeah I was very much a reluctant exerciser like I knew I had to you know, for the health benefits. So I did go to the gym kind of quite regularly, but I didn't make like great progress. And I think even more importantly, I just found the whole um, process of exercising uh, really unrewarding and um, yeah, actually, you know, quite painful, like just, you know, quite grueling really. And actually learning about the expectation effect has completely transformed that. So now going to the gym is actually one of my favorite activities. So when you go to a book like this, you know, there's so many studies, you know, in so many different areas. How do you kind of go through that process of figuring out what you want to add to the book and, and finding all that research? Mm, I mean, I guess like uh, throughout like my 10 years as being a science journalist, I'd actually 
come across a lot of research, especially on the placebo effect, um, before I even started to think to write a book about this. Um, and then, you know, I, I just kind of kept a folder of all of the interesting um, research I came across. And actually, the structure really naturally fell into place. You know, it seemed like um, previously we'd only considered the placebo effect, which is one form of expectation effect. We'd only really considered that in the clinical setting. But then the more I looked into it, the more I saw that it stretched to all other areas of life, which could be separated quite neatly. So there's um, food and diet, exercise, stress, um, kind of our willpower and self-control and then ageing and all of that just you know fell um, very neatly into place and, and yeah the more I looked the more fascinating I found it which is why I decided I really did want to tell this big story to people. So um, I thought it might be useful before we start just to sort of try to define a few of the terms you're going to probably talk about quite a bit. Um, and I know that your book is called The Expectation Effect and it's, you know, 200 pages or whatever it is long. Um, so trying to define that into a concise sort of Oxford Dictionary um, definition might be tricky. But can you maybe explain to us what you mean, I think, firstly, by the expectation effect? Um, and then maybe just go into, we've all heard of placebo, um, just sort of define what you mean by that and also nocebo which is um, a term some people not, might not be familiar with. Sure yeah so the expectation effect I just define as this self-fulfilling prophecy where our beliefs are shaping you know important outcomes through three main mechanisms and that can be through changes to our perception, changes to our behaviour and changes to our physiology. Um, and so the placebo effect is one example of this and it's really been studied very heavily you know, in the clinical setting with trials of drugs, for example, and placebo comes from the Latin for um, I shall please. And it simply means that if you have positive expectations that treatment is going to be successful, then it's more likely to be successful in many cases, especially for things like um, pain relief, for example. And we know that that does happen through changes in, you know, subjective perception, but also changes in our physiology. So the brain can actually produce its own endogenous painkillers. Um, those endorphins that we have when we um, experience the runner's high, well, they're also released when we have the, um, when we receive a dummy pill, um, we're told that it's a painkiller. And those chemicals can then in themselves, they help to you know, relieve our suffering. So that's one example and, you know, really provides, I think, a foundation for our understanding of other expectation effects. It's been so well studied, it kind of proves that our expectations are powerful. Um, now, the nocebo effect is really the evil twin of the placebo effect. So the nocebo effect is where you have expectations of becoming sick and you become sick. And it's through very much the same kinds of mechanisms that can cause the placebo effect is just in the opposite direction. One really common example of this is that if you're taking um, certain pills like antidepressants and your doctor warns you that you might experience headaches, then actually you're more likely to experience a headache because of that warning. And we know that that is caused by changes in the brain's physiology. So things like the vasodilation of the vessels, the blood vessels can actually change as a result of those expectations. And that can then bring about pain. And it's not just imagined pain, it's not just subjective, like it's actually you know, indistinguishable from when you have a headache from other causes. Mm. And the, probably the one other term that I think comes up in your book a lot is what you call the, the sort of the prediction machine. So maybe sort of just explain what you mean by that before we sort of start to delve into a few of uh, the sort of the, the case studies that, that are peppered through your book. 
Sure. I mean, the prediction machine is really the kind of underlying, um, I guess, machinery that um, that causes these expectation effects. And it's so fundamental to the way the brain works. Um, now, this is a, a theory that's been gaining a lot of ground in neuroscience and in particular the study of consciousness. And, and the idea here is that the brain is constantly preempting what's going to happen next. <clears throat> it's kind of forming predictions of, of, you know, the world around it in the moment and then what's going to happen next. And, you know, scientists studying consciousness are really interested in this because that shapes our perception really profoundly. So, you know, the light hitting our retinas is very messy. Um, but these simulations that the uh, brain's producing, um, when the brain is acting as this prediction machine, those simulations are actually shaping how the brain processes all of that messy data from the retina. And it can sometimes, uh, you know, kind of delete, you know, bits of data that it doesn't think makes sense, or it can actually add to it resolving ambiguity. You know, often it's correct, sometimes it's wrong, which is why we experience visual illusions occasionally. Now, importantly, the prediction machine, you know, when it's building these simulations, then it's also helping to um, prepare the body for the challenges that it thinks it's going to face. So it will do things like shaping the hormonal balance within the body. You know, if, you, if you're gonna need a big release of energy, then it will um, release adrenaline. Um, it will change things like blood pressure, can change the action of the gut. You know, how long food sits in your gut can be shaped by these simulations. So it's actually, it's shaping your physical reality in some way. What the brain expects to happen will then shape your physical reality. Awesome. Now, the, the book's broken into to 10 chapters, um, all of which, the, of what I've read so far, is really transferable to, to athletes. But you do have one particular chapter, um, number five, which is called Faster, Stronger, Fitter, How to Take the Pain Out of, your, out of Exercise. Um, now, you kicked off the, that chapter with quite an interesting anecdote from, uh, from the Tour de France. So maybe, maybe retell that story as, as an example of uh, the power of the placebo. Yeah, um, absolutely. So, um, you know, Richard Bironc, uh from the French Festina team, you know, he was um, uh, like, he was really good at the um, mountain trials, but I think he struggled with the time trials. And, um, and he had heard from, you know, other athletes that there was this amazing kind of substance going around that should actually help to kind of increase his speed and stamina. And so he asked his, his, uh, uh, Soigneur, if he could, um, if he could have some of this uh, substance, and you know, this guy Willie Boot, he uh, he wasn't really that keen on giving like a completely new substance to an athlete in the middle of the event. It's not that they were necessarily averse to using banned substances. It was just that, and in fact, you know, they got into a lot of trouble for that afterwards. But he he didn't want the risk of kind of bad side effects to happen. You know, that would threaten the team's chances of success. So he. Uh, Rather than, you know, giving this kind of, it was a kind of milky liquid that you're meant to inject into the buttocks, he just replaced it with like, you know, salt water or glucose water, like, um, you know, something completely innocuous. Um, but, you know, Vironk really had the uh, time trial of his life. Um, he was just amazed by it. And, you know, he was saying, like, oh, this substance is amazing. Like, we have to <laughs> use it every time. Um, and, you know, it, it was really clear to, to Voot that this was just his expectations and his beliefs that actually um, 
they had kind of supercharged his performance and you didn't need any magic substance at all to be able to do that. And, you know, I think this is quite well known in athletics and, um, you know, all kinds of sports that actually, you know, self-belief does make a difference. I think what's really important now is that sports scientists and physiologists are beginning to understand how that happens, you know, what, what's occurring in the brain, how the prediction machine is boosting performance, and then, you know, what kinds of exercises we can do to kind of use these effects ourselves without, you know, believing that we're taking a banned substance. In this chapter, you mentioned Tim Notes a little bit. What did you learn from him in regards to how we actually use the energy systems we use with exercise? Yeah, I mean, um, Tim Noakes has this um, great theory, which I think makes a lot of sense when you consider other expectation effects. And he very much sees it as being a part of, you know, like, um, or kind of aligned to, to the other expectation effects like the placebo effect. And he, he sees that the brain acts as this kind of central governor, he calls it. Um, essentially, it's just, you know, it's almost acting like an accountant. It's just working out kind of how much energy... <coughs> and resources we have in the moment, how much, you know, we need to kind of parcel out to be able to meet our goal without um, risking total exhaustion or injury. And so if it believes it's kind of exceeding its resources, then it will kind of pull back, it puts the brakes on your performance. And that's not caused by necessarily any kind of big physiological change, you know, within your body. It's not caused by, say, like the a dangerous buildup of lactic acid. It's actually the brain coming to this judgment and then um, it's just sending out signals to kind of pull back, to stop your exertion, to, to recruit fewer muscle fibres in your legs, for example. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of evidence now that this is true. Um, I mean, one of um, Noakes' own studies, he showed that even when we're exerting at, like, maximum capacity, we're only using 50 to 60% of the muscle fibres within uh, the body, uh, within our limbs. And, you know, if you were really like risking exhaustion, like it should be much higher than that, you'd think. If you were really like reaching fatigue, physical fatigue, purely physical fatigue, you'd think you'd already be using as many of your fibres as you could. But he believes that actually the brain is super conservative in its estimates. So it's limiting it to 60%, just so that you will have enough energy left within you if you do need to use um, your limbs for some other challenge after the race. Um, so I, I find that very convincing. And then it, it fits with loads of evidence showing that things like placebos can be really useful in um, sports um, performance, as we've seen with Baronk balls so with carefully controlled trials. We see that actually, you know, when people believe they're taking um, a kind of a, <coughs> a dot of really, uh, a shot of really uh, caffeinated coffee, um, that actually they can, you know, they, their capacity to lift weights is like so much higher, even when they're only taking a decaf shot instead. So, hmm. you know, um, and actually, you know, these scientists have shown that it's almost the effects of caffeine are almost completely caused by the uh, expectation of performance improvement rather wow. than any physiological change. So, yeah, really powerful stuff. Mm. Um, you talk about the prediction machine and, and how that can influence performance. Um, one example I remembered was uh, 
so I think they did a study where some athletes um, were doing some exercise and they were telling them it was going to be you know really hot and and whatever temperature it was, but the temperature was actually quite different and they they obviously did you know um, control mechanisms with that as well. So yeah, it seems like that prediction machine can really be quite influential. So what what were some of the studies you sort of found from a sporting context um, where what you think's actually happening can be you can sort of manipulate people's brains um, when they think it's maybe xyz temperature and it's actually quite different um, and they perform quite differently yeah i mean that was a great example you know just telling people that it was hotter than it really was actually caused them to um uh cause them i think it was cyclists in that case and they um you know just kind of completely missed their peak performance. Um, you know, another study that I really like was where they were giving people false feedback about the speed at which they were cycling. And they, the scientists found that, um, you know, telling the, the cyclists they were going slower than their optimum, than the actual speed they were going, uh, then just led them to kind of go even faster. Um, whereas if you told them they were going slightly faster than they actually were, then, you know, they couldn't beat that because they had set a kind of mental limit on what would be possible for their own performance. Um, so I find that really convincing too. Um, but I think, you know, there's also some some other studies looking more generally at like our, our beliefs about our own capacities. And I think they're really relevant for any athlete. Um, so, you know, um, there was one, um, one study was looking at people's... Uh, uh, kind of aerobic capacity. So um, they took two tests, you know, this standard kind of test of aerobic capacity where they were, you know, measuring um, people's peak performance on a treadmill um, with escalating speeds um, on two separate occasions. And after the first test, the, uh, uh, the researchers just kind of casually mentioned to some of the athletes, half of the athletes, oh, you perform really well on that, like much better than average. And the others, they didn't plant a negative expectation. They just didn't tell them that they were like, you know, uh, exceptionally good. Uh, what was really interesting then was on this second um, test, those who'd been given this positive expectation about their own performance, they subsequently then performed much better than the others. It was, you know, their overall endurance improved, their overall aerobic capacity was much better. And then follow-up experiments showed that it actually shaped things like the efficiency of their movements. So if they believed that they were like naturally good at, um, uh, you know, doing these um, endurance tests, then actually they seem to be moving in a way that um, would allow them to kind of run faster, but with, um, while burning less energy, which Efficient. is of course what, yeah, exactly. It's, it's, you know, increased efficiency is what you want to have when you're doing some kind of challenging event, like an Ironman event. Dealing with negativity, you know, especially a lot of people will go into a workout kind of working against themselves being successful in that workout. And you found some really good research on that. And it sounds like you've actually implemented that yourself with fitness. Yeah, totally. I mean, you know, I mean, it's definitely relevant for anyone, you know, even kind of elite athletes, I think, that you uh, you kind of, you, you want to quiet that kind of negative chatter in your head. And I think, you know, it's really easy for you to start to fall into this kind of catastrophic thinking about your own fitness you know if you're compare, constantly comparing your performance to someone else who might be performing better than you that can then cause you to be more negative about your own kind of body's capacities and then that can create this kind of uh, vicious cycle where you you 
you know, uh, it, through a kind of um, a negative expectation effect, it's reducing your performance. But but I found that actually this is just really useful for, you know, reluctant exercisers like me who might be carrying a lot of kind of baggage from, you know, their childhood that's given them negative expectations of exercise and what they can achieve. Um, and that, you know, by removing that kind of baggage, you know, you can start to see a lot more progress and actually enjoy the exercise a lot more. And that's what I've applied myself. And there's good backing for this kind of idea. So there was a study from Stanford University where the researchers had given people a genetic test, a real genetic test that looked at the CREB1 gene, which we know does influence endurance exercise. Um, but they gave the participants sham feedback. So some were told they had the kind of be beneficial variant. Others were told they had the less beneficial variant, the one that would make them feel more uncomfortable and would reduce their endurance during the exercise. Um, and, you know, like those other experiments that I, I described, they found that those expectations had a real impact. And actually, according to some measures of their performance, it was actually more important than the gene itself. So things like the mm -hmm gas exchange within the lungs actually depended more on the expectation than on the actual gene. So, you know, there's a good basis that our expectations are having these effects. And so, you know, when I was applying this to my own life, I just started questioning, you know, this idea that I'm like inherently bad at exercise. And, you know, the truth is that my genes will have an effect. And, you know, I probably couldn't ever have been an Olympic athlete. But that doesn't mean that I couldn't make like good progress like this science yeah. is really clear that the, the more you exercise the better you'll get at it like you will build strength it's like it has to be the way the body functions or you know we wouldn't have been very successful during our evolution if we didn't get fitter uh when we needed to exercise when we needed to go on those hunts um so I just started thinking about that a bit more and focusing on my own trajectory rather than making those comparisons with other people and always kind of putting myself down. And then I also tried to rethink the sensations that I was experiencing during the exercise itself, because you can, I think, especially if you're not used to exercise, it's quite easy for you to like read any kind of sign of discomfort as a sign that your body's not functioning, that you're no good, you know, that you're just like, you know, either that you're lazy or just that you're so unfit that you'll never get better. So all of those aches and pains, breathlessness, you know, I really started to, to try to avoid those negative um, thinking spirals around all of those sensations and instead look at them for what they really are, which is just a sign that I was actually exercising, pushing my body, you know, close to its limit and that that was beneficial for me, that that was what I needed to do to actually make progress and see it as a, a sign that I was building strength. And I found that really helpful for me in, you know, helping me to actually just enjoy the exercise. And we see from other studies that, you know, when you have this change of mindset, you know, it reduces the perceived exertion while you're exercising. And it actually does make it more likely that you're going to release those endorphins so that afterwards you're going to feel really good after the exercise rather than, you know, um, kind of just feeling exhausted and kind of wiped out for the rest of the day. Mm, awesome. Um well, I think you sort of closed out that chapter talking a bit around sort of visualization and there was some research around some brain scans of athletes that had been done to show that the brain sort of calculates exactly which muscles need to be stimulated when you're doing you know, visualization. But you, you sort of talked about internal imagery um, is, is a better way of doing that rather than external. So can you sort of explain what you mean there and, and any sort of tips that you picked up that, that athletes or, or anybody might find useful with regards to visualization? 
Sure. I mean, you know, again, I think some athletes have used this really well throughout, you know, sporting history. And Michael Phelps is a prime example. Like he didn't really believe that he had a physiological advantage, but he did believe that it was his amazing power of visualization that helped him. And he would like, you know, before any event, he would visualize in like excruciating detail, um, all of the twists and turns that he was going to make, like, you know, right down to like the tiniest movement, essentially. Um, he was visualizing himself doing the event. And, and he believed that was, you know, what allowed him to beat all of the other competitors. Um, and the research shows that there really is something in this, that when you visualize yourself doing exercise, that's actually helping the prediction machine to kind of recalibrate its, um, uh, its kind of perceptions of what it can achieve, and also to plan the, the optimum movements to achieve the goal that you want to meet. Um, so, you know, that can be for, you know, like fine kind of motor skills, like, you know, playing golf. Um, but actually it can also be really uh, fundamentally important, you know, just for building strength. Um, the idea here is that when you're simulating those movements, you're mentally simulating them, you're kind of encouraging the prediction machine to recognize that it can afford to employ more muscle fibers within your limbs without kind of damaging itself. And so, you know, when it's, it's planning those movements, it just sends the right signals to make sure you're, you're making the most of your muscles rather than being overly conservative, which is really, you know, it's kind of default is to be overly conservative. And it's just pushing that kind of limit just, just a bit further so that you can um, improve your performance. And, and one study, there've been so many studies and for one study, it was quite small, but it, it's really telling. They asked these participants to kind of not actually go to the gym, but just to visualize themselves doing some heavy lifting, like lifting a table for a, uh, a month or two. And then by the end, they found that these uh, participants had actually um, improved their performance by about 10%, whereas the participants who had not been doing any of the mental exercise, they were actually a tiny bit weaker than they had been. <laughs> um, now, the nuance in this study was that they did compare internal imagery to external imagery. So, you know, whether you kind of imagined it in the first person, you actually doing the exercise yourself, or whether you kind of were almost like in your mind's eye, you were like the fly on the wall, watching yourself from the outside doing the exercise. Um, that didn't seem to be very effective. It seemed to be much better to actually, you know, be really immersing yourself in your visualization. So, you know, really imagining that you're actually straining your muscles, like really thinking about what that would feel like within your own body. Um, that's what seemed to be best at kind of changing the prediction machines, um, evaluations of its, its own capacity, and then helping it to, to plan those muscle movements. Awesome. Now, um, one area of the book you probably could have written about 50 books on is, is sort of around uh, nutrition, and I'm sure you get lots of feedback on this and lots of requests about it. Um, but there's some staggering studies that, that you, you sort of cite, and it's really I guess it's more about, not so much about what we eat, but a lot of it is to do with our expectations and, and controlling those uh, can massively influence how our body responds. You know, it's easily easy to point to people and just, you know, say they, they eat too much, but there's, there's a lot more going on um, inside the brain. So can you give us a, a couple of fantastic examples around labeling and, and maybe misleading information? Um, some, uh, the example I'm thinking of is there was one around a milkshake. So maybe just sort of talk us through that and um, 
how just simply labeling something and explaining it differently can have uh, a massive impact uh, on a biological level as well as, as uh, obviously in your head. Sure. I mean, so I guess the kind of um, scientific theory behind all of this is that we do have within our gut kind of sensors, you know, that can measure like the stretch of the of the gut, you know, as it fills with food. And, you know, you also have nutrient sensors that can, you know, feed the brain this kind of very rough idea of kind of how much food you've consumed. But um, but they are really poor, you know, um, and ambiguous kind of signals that you're you're getting. You know, I mentioned about how the brain can shape the, you know, what we see by kind of tailoring the, the sensory data hitting our eyes. Well, actually, the data from the gut is even more ambiguous than the light patterns on our retina. Um, and so that means that it does need to use things like our, our memories of what we've eaten and our expectations of, of, you know, what that food is going to do for us to kind of shape its sense of satiety and, you know, whether it, um, whether it should still feel hunger later on or not. So that's like the basis for this idea. And there's been plenty of research showing that, you know, even things like food labeling can shape our expectations of satiety. And then that in turn actually shapes how full we feel. Um, you know, if you give someone a chocolate bar um, or a cookie and you tell them that it's kind of, you know, high calorie, really satisfying, um, they're going to feel much more um, satisfied afterwards compared to when they, um, if you tell them it's kind of this health bar with like low calories and you know something that's kind of bland but good for you um so we know that that can have a psychological effect it actually shapes the perception of hunger um but what the, this research with the milkshake showed was that actually this could also shape the hormonal response to the food and the researchers were really looking at the hunger hormone ghrelin so ghrelin stimulates appetite when levels of ghrelin are high you know you have those hunger pangs and you, you kind of want to reach for the cookie jar. You know, when it's low, you know, you feel satisfied, you can focus on, on other things. Um, now, what normally happens when we eat a, a satisfying meal is that um, ghrelin might kind of peak just beforehand because, you know, your hunger's been stimulated by seeing the food in front of you, but then it drops because, you know, your brain and your body then know you don't need to eat for the next few hours. Um, what these researchers did was, uh, they gave the participants two milkshakes on different occasions. They were exactly the same milkshake, but the labeling was just different. One emphasized, you know, kind of uh, how many calories it had in it, you know, it exaggerated the number of calories to like 600 calories, like, you know, enough almost for a small meal. It said how much ice cream had gone into it, how much cream had gone into it, you know, emphasized the delicious chocolate flavor. It was kind of luxurious, you know, all of this, all of these words on the packaging made the people feel that it was going to be like a, a really satisfying treat. Um, on the other occasion, they gave them this, uh, the, the labeling for the milkshake was all about the kind of health benefits. It was called like a census shake. And it just emphasized that, you know, you it basically had like 200 calories and, you know, it was quite bland, but would be, you know, uh, it would it would help you to lose weight essentially. That was what they were focusing on, what it didn't have rather than what it did have. Um, and the researchers showed that that shaped the ghrelin response quite remarkably. So for the people who had the uh, kind of when the when the people had the luxurious shake, you know, full of calories, full of cream, full of fat, um, they actually saw that rising ghrelin and then the dramatic drop straight after they'd eaten it. Um, 
for the people with the eating this sensei shake, the ghrelin levels just barely changed at all. It was as if they hadn't eaten. And that's really profound, I think, but all of the times that we, you know, we're trying to lose weight and you kind of go into the supermarket and you're focusing only on the low number of calories in the food and you might choose like a, a diet food that you're not really going to enjoy, but just because it's kind of slimming, you know, you're creating that sense of deprivation. And that could then change things like the ghrelin levels within your body that will mean that actually you're going to feel these hunger pangs uh, you know, much more strongly later on in the day, which is mean you're going to be so much more tempted to kind of snack after having had your meal than if you had something with the same number of calories, but that, you know, had really emphasised the kind of enjoyment and pleasure that you were having from that food. Um, so that's something we really need to bear in mind. I think if we are trying to lose weight, or even if you're just trying to maintain a stable weight, is that, you know, we should see our meals as a kind of celebration and that actually... You know, when we're dieting, pleasure is a really important ingredient in the foods that we're consuming. Mm. What I like with the, the chapters, all the chapters you do, is you sort of do a nice little summary at the end of each chapter, which kind of gives some some action points. So, you know, guys, what you're going to find in this book is lots and lots of case studies, you know, science-based case studies, um, evidence-based, and then there's nice summaries at the end. And, and especially in that sort of nutrition chapter, there's definitely some takeaways you can have. Uh, I'm trying to lose a few kilos myself at the moment, and there's a few little bits pit, and pieces that I've picked up there, and it's uh, made a nice little difference. Uh, just thinking, as David said, thinking about what you're eating, think about what you've eaten, um, avoiding distractions like watching TV when you're eating. So it's got lots of good practical advice so david i could probably talk to you for for a couple of hours um but guys what you want to be doing is actually going out and, and reading this book uh, i think yeah. you'll all find it fascinating um it's called the expectation effect um we'll have links to it on the on our website um and i know you've also got a couple of other titles that you've done as well david so yeah awesome um we'll have to get you doing a triathlon at some stage uh, your expectations will be honed in you'll be you'll be on fire um but no uh, um, thanks so much for your time and uh, any any sort of final comments for, for the athletes out there? Uh, I just think that um, the, the big lesson that I learned here was that when I'm exercising is to see it as a kind of um, not just training my body, but training my mind. And if I have a bad you know, day where my performance is really below par, like not to catastrophize that or to feel too anxious about that, but actually to just kind of be compassionate with myself and to, to tell myself that actually, you know, maybe that is just what my body needed at that stage. And that actually, you know, you need to listen to your body, but then, you know, I can still go into the next session feeling that I can still have those optimum expectations and basically to focus on my trajectory. So, you know, my path, you know, from week to week, month to month, rather than getting too focused on every single session. Um, and I think that's just like quite good advice in general um, for athletics, but also for, you know, all things in life, actually, is yeah. we can't yeah. always be performing at our best. You know? mm. Well, and that's the thing, isn't it? All these lessons are transferable to many different areas, aren't they? Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, and I think the same skills that you might learn you know, um, changing your mindset around um, your kind of sports performance could equally be really useful. Like if you're, you know, trying to kind of improve your performance in your job, or if you're kind of a, a student at university, you know, changing your academic performance is really transferable. Yeah. Brilliant. Thanks so much for your time, David. No, thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Okay, we are back and great uh, interview. Great interview. So, John, you're reading the book, and you and I, I will read this book because it's kind of you know me. I love this kind of crap. So, um, you're saying it's actually really helping you. 
Yeah, it just I think for, for one of the things I like, and I said this in the interview, is he does little summaries at the end of each chapter. Um, and, that's, and is that like kind of how to apply it? How to apply it. Yeah, because great. you're going through it and then you go, oh, this is already great. I understand all that, but yeah. what can I do? Um, and especially around the nutrition side of it, um, there's a few things I put out. I'm trying to lose some kgs. And I might do a high five on next week's show just around a few things that I picked up from it. And it's, yeah, it's just made a nice little difference at a time where – I just happened to need to lose some weight, and I know I'm not a big fatty or anything, but I was carrying flab that was just unnecessary, yeah. um, and it's just helped me to shift. Well, you that. have the problem of I, I train a lot, I can eat a lot. Yeah, you know, and so you, you, you're the problem with people like you, well, you know, for people who exercise a lot, is you can have weaknesses that get disguised, hmm. um, and a as we're aging. That becomes a little bit more well, difficult. You, you can read the book and you, just, you can't believe that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's well, an expectation. I'm, I'm not believing that. Although I'll say it's, it's definitely I've noticed my body's not as lean as what I was when I was younger. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, and I've pretty much trained the same and eat the same. Yeah. You know, so there's an element to it, but as yeah, I, I don't use age as an excuse, but yeah. yeah. But if you one of the in some of the stuff that in the book, you know, if you believe you're going to get slow and injured and yeah. stuff when you're older. The chances of it happening are significantly higher. And that's one rule I've had because because I'm now 44, 45 in a couple of weeks. Um, actually, by the time this comes out, I am actually forty five. Um, <laughs> but I always had this thing of I, when I get injured, it's not age; it's just injury. Hmm. Because I've got injured every year of my sport m- movement life, hmm. you know, and I push my body really hard. It's you know now maybe eventually there will be things that purely are just about age, but yep. I'm only forty five. Hmm. You know, like it's you know, it's a long time in front of me. No, it's a good book, guys. Uh, so um, the book is called "The Expectation Effect: How to Change How Your Mindset Can Transform Your Life." I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Okay, John, let's go into your quiz question. Quiz question. Okay, your first Ironman race. First, Collins, uh, John Collins came up with that notion of doing. So the first quick. triathlon was seventy-eight. Because remember, we said Mission Bay seventy-eight T-shirt. Mm. So I'm thinking maybe it's seventy-nine. I was going to say 78 originally. I, was, I think it's 78. I think maybe 70. We did have Mission Bay 78, didn't yeah, we? Yeah, yeah. See, I had in my mind it was 76 was Mission Bay for some reason and 78 was the first time. Yeah, I thought 78 at first, but that T-shirt throws me off. It's definitely not 1980, so it's definitely a 70. Yeah. And I'm... Oh, I, maybe it is 78. I'm, I'm going 78. Okay, have you got it here somewhere? Uh, I, I have not, but I will okay, go first to tryrating.com and we will pull it up. But I think I'm going. I'm going 78. It's a good thing with Torsten. He's got all top ten of Kona all time. No, that is 78. And 78, February 18th, 78. Did I say was, 78? Yet? I think I did. did. We kind of agreed on that. Gordon Howler, <laughs> and he went 11 hours 46:58. So there we go. So when was the Mission Bay Triathlon? Was that 78 as well? So I was I was six months old then. Yeah. Um, Mission Bay Triathlon. Or maybe it wasn't. Oh, the problem if you put Mission Bay Triathlon is there's triathlons up in Auckland. Maybe um, first triathlon ever. God, this is gold podcasting. 74. September, uh, September 25th, 1974. Um, yeah, there you go. Well, and for those who haven't listened to the show forever, there's an argument to say that it was actually in, the fr- in France in like oh, 1920. Oh, that's Hellman's uh, yeah. argument, yeah. Yeah, because it was, a, a, was a basically a triathlon back in those days, wasn't there? Yeah. Yeah, so um, what's really cool when you think about that? So it's coming up 45 years, you know, 45 years next year. Mm. So in five years from now, we've got the 50th Kona. Mm. I wonder what they'll do to make that amazing. You know, because a lot of these things just kind of come and go. But 50 years, that's pretty significant. You've got to try to get every single winner back if they're still alive. Yeah, they've got to do something They've got to do something that's not just, hey, 
you know, because like Liz Mills is a really good example. Liz Mills, they had Pump 100. And like that's basically the, the business been around for 25 years. And it was a big thing, but they kind of dropped the ball on it. It wasn't that great. And then luckily when they did Body Attack 100, which is the one I was on, mm. they nailed it. Like they got everything right. That What they did is they basically like 20 instructors, 10 of the new, the new stars coming through, 10 of them were the legends of the game. Um, the music was a mix of everything. We had teaching to 3,000 people. And, it's, you know, and it was just like it really celebrated the moment in the most special way possible. Yeah. 50 years. Like, if they're not budgeting for it now, they should be. I think we need to go, Bevan. And I'm, uh, I'm thinking, I was thinking, when am I going to go back and do Kona? And it's not going to be in the next couple of years because yep, I only want to do it properly. Yep. So it's probably going to be when I'm about 50. Um, and that would be 52 that year. Okay, there you go. Six years to build up for... Yeah, I just think, you know, Kona. like, what a cool moment in our sport. Because mm. really, we talk about the birth of the triathlon Mission Bay, but really it's Ironman. Mm. You know, Ironman kick-started triathlon in a massive way, especially maybe not that first year. Yeah. But as we talked about a couple of episodes ago, we had Julie Moss where, you know, that, that um, Sports Illustrated article. For me, personally, Ironman did not, was not really that big a thing until well into the 2000s. When I was in the 90s and stuff, granted, I don't know, I had my blinkers on, but it was not until Ironman was a business and going nuts that it was... But was it, was, were your blinkers... Because I, th- I think most triathletes in the world in the two thousand in the nineties probably thought Ironman most. Uh, but who were the not, not in the nineties? So people you still watched it and thought that's awesome. But like in our training community in Christchurch, there was only this random person who would be doing Ironman. Everyone else was doing short course. Really? Um, that might just be a Christchurch thing. It might have been different elsewhere in the yeah, world. Yeah, but interesting. But, like like Louis, what would Louis say? Mm, you know, because yeah. Louis Louis Di Giuseppe. Um, Louis let us know yeah okay uh, okay good stuff so interesting stuff Iron Man the 50 year anniversary is coming team let's make the most of it okay so I've lost my show notes okay so, so today's swim workout oh, brought to you by Form uh, Goggles um, now this is from their workout library and the good thing about their workout library is there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of workouts in there um, the, the Form model is, is you know it's a subscription based thing so if you're subscribing you get access to all these workouts um, and you can just pick them randomly or you can go on a structured plan um, and the good thing for people like me who are sometimes a little bit stuck in their ways just a little bit um, no. it, <laughs> it gets you to do some stuff that you wouldn't normally do now this workout when we're recording I haven't actually done it but I will be doing it because uh, so this, like is, this is a form workout is it yeah so you, okay great so I went into the into the, the plans um, and I went into um, I wanted to do a sprint type session or you got sprint Olympic half Ironman, Ironman, etc. Um, or you can just pick a workout out of their, their library. So I went into their workout library, I put in some filters, and I wanted to do a test set. Uh, and then I picked a long session, so that gave me the options um, between 2.5 and 3.9 Ks. And the one I've selected, which I quite like, is it's, the title of it is 100 All Out. Uh, and so the session is 2.5 kilometers long. It's got a nice little warm-up. You do 100 easy, 450s kick, 450s moderate, and then 100 easy. Then it's got a pre-set um, to get you sort of primed for your, for your main set, and it's t- twice through doing 250s build-up, 50 fast, 150 easy. So you've got a nice mix of some faster work and some easier work. And then the main set, the big daddy, pretty short, sharp. You've got one objective. Uh, you're going 50 fast to get you warmed up, 150 easy, and then 100 
maximum oh. balls to the wall everything you've got and 100 easy so so that's just your main set you only do it once yep you have wow. got some some post set yeah. work um, afterwards the post set is to do four, four times through 250s easy 50 fast and then the warm down 100 breaststroke 100 backstroke 100 easy so it is a speed session and sometimes you might think oh I'm doing Ironmans 3.8 k's long steady swim yes you definitely need your insurance you've got to do those workouts but sometimes these breakout workouts of doing say 100 or some two really fast 200s maybe a, a max effort 400 that's going to be what sort of gives you a nice little lift and actually teaches you to swim fast and a bit more efficiently and then hopefully that'll sort of transfer across to your, your Ironman swimming as well and holding your form when you're fatiguing because mm. you know you're getting the lack of the threshold happening there aren't you so it's trying to hold but it's cool just to be able to go and do how fast can I go for 100 metres oh, I love this uh, and the good thing with these type of workouts is you don't have to think you don't have to write down a piece of paper that is going to take you through the workout uh, and with in your goggle, it's just going to say, do this now. Go for 100 easy, boom, do 450s kick. You don't have to think. you just got to go. I need. To, I know I'm building up for 100 metres fast. So cool workout. Um, check it out, formswim.com. Use the promo code IM15, $15 off, and get yourself swimming faster and with some more interest. If I was swimming, I would love this because, as I said a couple of weeks ago, squads I was great at. Mm-hmm. Outside of squads, I, I, I struggled big time. Mm. And just not having a program was one of the problems. Motivation mm. was a problem. This year, big Easy. time. Great yeah. tool. So if you wanted to get it again, as John just said before, www.formswim.com. Use the promo code IM15 to get $15 off. Okay, John, let's say thank you to our patrons. Fred Linebacker Litz. We've got John the Falcon Fredrickson. And Tim Beastie Besant. If you want to come, or oh, oh, actually, if you want to become patron, go to www.iamtalk.me. Go through the process, support the boys. Again, think of us as your magazine. You know, back in the old days, you bought magazines. I don't know nowadays you go to websites, but we're like a magazine. We're your exactly. mates. So support the boys by putting some of your hard earned money our way. You can also get the show emailed to you on that same page. Uh, but John, let's say thank you to our sponsor. Form. They empower swimmers at every level to reach their goals, whether they want to swim stronger, faster, swim further, or be more efficient. Get lap by lap motivation with real time metrics and workout instructions right in your goggles. Okay, if you want some coaching, coachjohnnewson.com. Uh, my podcast, Bevan James Isles Show.com. Uh, my new book, I Will Make You Passionate About Exercise, passionaboutexercise.com, and website of the week, call websites and other stuff, I am talk, podcast at gmail.com. John, your goss. I'm men- mentally smoked now, Bevan. We've been sitting here, we've done three shows back to back. We've going done for well. <laughs> nearly three and a half hours. I've been eating in 12 hours. <laughs> <laughs> and so cut. I've been eating in 16 hours. Jeez. We, we know that the, you guys, a lot of you will watch the Collins Cup and I'm sure it was a step up from last year, but sometimes cut some slack to those people that are having to sit there and the commentators are talking for like four or five oh. hours continuously. It's uh, not that easy and you do get a little frazzled. So I'm frazzled, Bevan. I'm done. I'm time to bike home and have some lunch. Time for, for me, I'm having lunch and a nap. Mm. That's our roll. To- two fried eggs. Uh, What's of- your lunch time process? Do you process? stop? Like, like, do you take like an hour off? Oh, no, but half an hour. I take yeah. an hour. Yeah. I stop, I make lunch, eat mm-hmm. lunch. Mm-hmm. Then I have my chocolate biscuits, mm-hmm. and they're always frozen. So mm-hmm. then I suck my chocolate biscuits. I enjoy it, John. You enjoy yeah, it? Good. I and enjoy you think it. about it afterwards? And I play, I play um, basically a card game on my phone for 10 minutes. Do you do your Wordle and your Quirtle and yeah, your Yeah, I've got fall away from Wordle. Have you? Are you doing Wordle still? Uh, most days. Yeah. We do the, we do the, um, the, the, the mini. If you, they've got a mini crossword. Um, uh-huh. And it's pretty, relatively easy. Okay. But Blinder and I do that every night together. 
Yeah. It's a little thing. Uh, Joe's still in the wordle. Mm. Occasionally will, but not so much now. Um, and then I meditate, and it's mm. an hour. And you were my curse on wordle because I'm your curse because all the I 100% record. You said, "Oh, what's your what's your record?" I said, "100%. I've never lost it." And after that, I think I lo- I think I'm down to like 98%. Oh, what happened? So, I'm, I'm your I'm yeah, the reason. Your reason. Have, you cursed me. I've I've actually recently haven't been. I think my percentage is. 97, but I had a couple bad ones recently, which were it's sometimes annoying. I rush. It's so annoying. Was that? It's so annoying when it's like worry and you put, you put sorry. Yeah. It's just like, you've come on. There's like six options for one word. <laughs> yeah. 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 So anyway. Anyway, John, let's wrap it up. We're going to be back in the studios next week. So And we'll be talking Colin's Cup. Here we go. I'm Russ. I'm Indoim. Train hard. Train smart. Kia kaha. <laughs>